Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Phantom Shark by John Blaine. Volume 6, Chapter 12, The Mystery Ship Rick and the others kept a close watch on the lagoon, but the giant fin failed to reappear. Rick spoke his thoughts aloud. Why not some kind of diving outfit? It wouldn't have to be the regular kind. It would account for some of the tales about a big silver fin, wouldn't it? It might be, Jack admitted. That would mean a self-contained diving unit with its own air supply and some kind of propulsion. If it were motor-driven, it might account for the fin. Submarines don't have fins, but they do have stabilizers. Chada looked at Rick. You're a scientist. You've never heard of a machine like that? Rick shook his head. The closest thing to it I've ever heard about were the midget subs that the Japanese used during the war. This thing isn't that big, and I didn't see any conning tower or a periscope. It doesn't matter much, Jack pointed out. It's a man-made gadget of some kind. The thing that puzzles me is what is it doing out in that lagoon? Maybe harvesting pearls on the bottom, Chada suggested. Jack grinned mirthlessly. If that's so, the shark has found the most wonderful pearl beds in history. Believe me, kids, pearlers just don't sweep the bottom. They work hard for what they get, and they don't get much. Then what are they or it after? Rick asked practically. I don't know, Jack said. I'd certainly like to take a look, though. Mrs. Warren had filled her sugar sack with shells. She and Dr. Warren walked toward them. Bill Duncan and Carl Ackerman were arguing over the species of something they had found out on the beach. Are you ready to return to the ship? Dr. Warren asked. Yes, sir, Rick said. He told the scientist about the strange fin and pointed to the place where they had seen it. Warren's brows furrowed. Assuming that what you saw was man-made, I must admit I don't like it. However, I'd like a bit more information. If this device isn't really a sea creature of some sort, where is the ship it operates from? Behind the island. Anyway, that's my guess. Jack Pulani pointed to the island on the horizon. Very well. And what is this ship supposed to be doing behind the island when its little undersea craft is in the lagoon? Probably hiding from us, Rick said. In that case, I propose we let it hide successfully. Tom Bishop had been sitting in the comfort of the boat, waiting for them to return. Anything exciting? he asked. From what I can see, this is just like... Ten thousand other atoll islands. I decided not to roam around. Nothing exciting on this island, Rick said. But in the lagoon? Well, I don't know what we saw. It certainly wasn't a herring, though. Tom grinned. Still looking for sea monsters. Perhaps we'd better break out a trawl and give the lagoon a once-over. 
We'd come up with enough fish for supper and maybe the phantom shark besides. A very practical suggestion, Dr. Warren said, but I don't think we'd better follow it. Suppose we did catch the strange creature. What would we do with it? I'm certain from the description that it's not edible. Rick looked at Dr. Warren and saw the twinkle in his eye. He had an idea that the dignified scientist was as curious as any of them, but since the survey was his responsibility, he had no intention of hunting trouble. As the tarpon moved into deep water, the group gathered on the aft deck. The trawler moved to the north, paralleling the atoll reef. Rick didn't fail to keep an eye on the island behind him, which the phantom shark was presumably hiding. It was too far away to see clearly. But Tom Bishop had brought binoculars. During the fifteen minutes it took them to come abreast of the island, he studied it through the glasses, but saw nothing. Let me look, Rick begged. He had no hope of seeing very much, but he took the powerful glasses and held them to his eyes. There was nothing to see but palms. Then suddenly there was a bright line behind the palms, like sunshine striking metal. There's something there, he exclaimed. But he readjusted the focus and strained to see, and he couldn't make out what it was. Let's have them, Dr. Warren asked. He took the binoculars and studied the island. A line of light. Well, it looks like a reflection from metal bar or something of the kind. Carl Ackerman was the next to try. He held the glasses steady for a long moment and then said, I believe I see something sticking up. Tom, take another look. Are those masts? They were slightly past the island now, at the point where the palms thinned out. Tom Bishop took a long look and then passed the glasses to Jack. Mess right enough. Jack, can you make out the rigging? The mate studied the spot. Then, as the tarpon moved into a better position, he gave a sudden exclamation. I can see it. It's a scooter. No, it's a catch. It's... Oh, hang on. It's gone behind the palms again. The Hawaiian lowered the glasses. I got a brief look. It's a sailing craft, catch-rigged. At least the mizzen was shorter than the mainmast. I couldn't get a good look at the hull. The type of boat doesn't matter, Dr. Warren said. At least we're now sure we have company at Nonatiki. What on earth would a boat be doing here? Mrs. Warren asked. Getting pearls, Barbie said. It was one answer, but Rick couldn't fully accept it. Surely the phantom shark didn't depend on diving to get pearls for sale. It would take years, and more than one lagoon to supply a necklace like Gerald's. I wish we had time for a long look around, Rick said. Dr. Warren smiled. Curious, Rick? Well, I am too. But if that vessel is the Phantom Sharks, I don't know whose else it would be. We can't risk staying around. He glanced at Tom Bishop. We'd better put a few miles between us and Nanatiki, Tom, just in case our friend doesn't like visitors. The fisherman nodded. I don't think he'll worry much about us. Unless we try to get close to see who he is. Well, perhaps you're right. A little distance won't hurt anything. It's useless to speculate, the scientist said. We won't know what he's doing here until we've had a chance to explore the islands and the lagoon. 
But we're leaving, and we won't have a chance, Barbie objected. Rick watched as Dr. Warren took the binoculars and swept the lagoon. We'll come back here, won't we? he asked. Yes, Dr. Warren said. We will be back. By that time, our friend will be gone, and we'll have Nonatiki to ourselves. Chapter 13 The Tarpon Returns The Tarpon steamed steadily southward while all hands occupied themselves with various tasks. During the ten days in which they had explored the waters between Nanatiki and Indispensable Reef, enough material and information had been accumulated to keep them going at top speed. Chada and Carl were below decks most of the time, working on specimens brought up by the nets. Bill Duncan worked over a large-scale chart of the area, recording the phantometer, reading and analyzing them. Dr. Warren, with Rick helping him, made constant checks on water temperature and filled water samples for Carl to analyze. The equipment for taking temperature and samples was simple but ingenious. It was lowered on a long metal shaft connected to a steel cable. Along the shaft were bottles with hinged tops and three thermometers. The tarpon always stopped when samples were being taken. Rick would reel out the line until Dr. Warren signaled that the proper depth had been reached. Then a metal object called a messenger would be released to slide rapidly down the steel cable. When it came into contact with the equipment, the hinged tops of the sample bottles would snap shut and the thermometers would be reversed, breaking the thin silver line of mercury in such a way that the temperature could be easily determined when the equipment was hauled back in again. Scotty was kept busy helping Tom Bishop. Several times the booms had been rigged and the big otter trawl put over the stern. Once or twice it had come up with only a few astonished ocean travelers. More often it had flopped back on the deck with a slippery, leaping, squirming mass of fish, some of them incredibly colored and of nightmare shapes. Then one or two of each variety could be chosen and packed into the refrigerator for inspection and classification by Bill and Carl. The rest were dumped back into the sea. To Rick and Scotty, it seemed that the quantity of fish was more than enough to warrant commercial fishing, but the scientists were not satisfied. Barbie had discovered a new talent. Mrs. Warren, in addition to keeping the records, made color charts of each fish, sketching in the outline of the fish and then indicating the coloring with watercolors. Barbie tried her hand at it and found she could sketch rapidly and with considerable accuracy. Consequently, she spent most of her time sketching the specimens and trying to perfect her technique under Mrs. Warren's guidance. She was also entranced by Bill Duncan's microscope and what it showed her when the silken plankton nets were brought up to the surface. Sometimes the nets brought up only greenish thick scum, which didn't look like much to the naked eye, but resolved itself into a myriad of weird little sea creatures under the lens. Barbie used up pads of sketch paper, drawing the odd little creatures. Dr. Warren shook his head as he checked over a batch of her sketches. I don't know what we'll do when you young folks leave us. This was supposed to be only a vacation, but you've made yourselves so useful we'll miss your help as well as your company. They were so occupied with their self-appointed tasks that the phantom shark faded back into the background. 
They were even a little disappointed to find that the tarpon had headed back toward Nanatiki. The indispensable reef region had been fascinating, and there was no assurance that the area between Nanatiki and the New Hebrides would be nearly as interesting. They arrived at Nanatiki on the following morning. Jack Pualani took the wheel himself, while Tom Bishop stood in the bow to watch for shoal water, and a seaman stood by, with lead in hand, ready to take soundings. The tarpon made a complete circle of the atoll, moving at only five knots, in case coral heads should suddenly thrust up in the ship's path. Rick and Dr. Warren sketched in reefs and small islands on the atoll chart as Bill Duncan took sightings and called off data. Barbie, Mrs. Warren, Carl Ackerman, and Chada contented themselves with being spectators, sometimes rushing to the rail as the tarpon passed close by a coral outcropping. It was afternoon before the circuit of the atoll was completed. Then Jack took the ship toward a break in the reef that promised a clear passage into the lagoon. No sign of any other ship, Rick said to Scotty. Guess our phantom buddy got back to Noumea on schedule. Taking a raft of pearls with him, I bet, Scotty nodded. And the question is, where'd he get them? Were they hidden somewhere? Rick shrugged. He had puzzled over that until his head ached, but no answer or even a remote theory had been forthcoming. As a hiding place, Nanatiki was good, but it was too remote. Pearls weren't bulky, and it wouldn't take much room to hide them right in Noumea. He couldn't believe that the phantom shark had come to fish for pearls. There just weren't that many pearls in any lagoon, according to the people who should know, like Dr. Ward and Bill Duncan. Maybe we'll find out when we look around a little, he said, but I'm not too hopeful. By the way, what's the date, anyway? Scotty figured rapidly. It's the 15th. Their eyes met. Tonight, in Noumea, Gerald and the Phantom Shark would be having their meeting. Well, that does it, Rick said. By the time we get back, the Phantom Shark will be peddling his pearls in Singapore or somewhere else, and Gerald will probably be far away. I guess we can call this case closed. Looks like it, Scotty agreed. Tom Bishop's voice was raised from the bow. All hands come up here and help keep a lookout. The tarpon had turned and was heading for the break in the reef. Rick and Scotty rushed to the bow with the others and joined Tom. We'll have clearance on both sides, the skipper said. And we'll slow down and heave the lead to be sure there's plenty on the bottom. But all you keep your eyes open for obstructions ahead. Watch out for water to change color. Watch for coral heads. You'll see them if they're near the surface. The trawler pushed through the water with just enough speed to maintain rudder control. The leesman sang out the depths as he worked. No bottom at fifteen! He swung the fourteen-pound lead again and found bottom. By the deep, twelve! Surf beat against the reef on either side of the tarpon as it slipped through. Rick saw the sharp coral teeth of the reef ten feet from the hull and shuddered what would happen to the trawler if she should hit such a spot. Then they were inside the lagoon, swinging to the north toward the island where they had seen the phantom sharks catch. It took a long time because they had to feel their way lacking an accurate chart of the lagoon. 
Plenty of water, looks like, Tom Bishop finally said. We've yet to see any dangerous heads, he called to Jack. Clear ahead, steady as she goes. Steady as she goes, the big Hawaiian repeated. A few moments later, the anchor chain rattled out and they came to rest a few hundred yards off the small island of Faisal, behind which the sailing craft had hidden. Are we going ashore? Rick asked eagerly. We certainly are, Dr. Warren agreed. Let's not waste any time about it. I'm anxious as you are to see if our mysterious pearl pirate left any signs of his visit. Jack called an order, and the starboard lifeboat was lowered into the water. The group began getting into the boat as soon as a ladder was lowered. Rick took a seat next to Barbie and grinned at her look of eager expectancy. What do you think we'll find? I don't know, but don't you think we'll find something? She said. Well, we will soon know, Charlie replied. It took only a few seconds for the boat to make the short run. Rick jumped to the sand and held out his hand to Mrs. Warren and then to Barbie. When they were safely ashore, he turned to survey the island. It was like the one they had first visited, but smaller. It had the same palms and the same sandy beaches, and pretty much nothing else. We want to cover every inch of it, Scotty said. How do we go about it? Well, suppose we walk to the southern tip then spread out in a line across the island and walk the length of it, Dr. Warren suggested. That's a good idea, Rick replied. The island's only a couple hundred feet wide. Let's get started. He, Barbie, and Chada led the way, with Barbie stopping now and then to pick up an attractive shell. At the tip of the island, they turned and waited for the others. When they were all assembled, Dr. Warren directed, Bobby, you take the extreme right. Go up the beach. Rick next to Barbie, then Scotty, Chada, Bill, Tom, Jack, Carl, and I, with Helen at the extreme left. Keep steady intervals and be sure the area between you is covered thoroughly. I haven't the vaguest idea what we're looking for, but we may find something of interest. Mrs. Warren smiled at Barbie. They're letting us comb the beaches. Do you suppose our interest in shells has anything to do with that? It's because you have sandals. Scotty volunteered. The sand will run right out again, but we're going to get our shoes full if we stand out there. Mrs. Warren nodded soberly. I see. Chivalry gives way to practicality. Scotty didn't know what to say to that. They spread out in a line that extended across the island and started a slow walk toward the other end. Rick scanned every inch of ground in his area and saw that the others were being equally thorough. There were coconut crabs, big fellows with massive claws that sidled out of the way. There were fallen coconuts and dried, broken palm fronds, pigweed, and one lonely pandanus tree, but nothing else. At the northern tip of the island, the group reassembled. Did anyone find anything? Dr. Warren asked. No one had. Not even a footprint, Barbie said. Jack Pulaney spoke up. I don't think whoever was on the catch even came ashore. Why should they? There's obviously nothing on the island. He pointed out into the lagoon. That's where we saw the fin, remember? And that's where we're going to find the answer to the riddle. If there is an answer. 
Rick thought that the mate was probably right, that the lagoon was long and wide. How could they hope to cover all of it? He put the question aloud. We can't cover all of it, Tom Bishop agreed. Best we could do is go out to the place where you saw the fin, or at least the approximate area, and take a look at the bottom. He glanced at the sun. There's time enough for a few runs across the area before it gets dark. We could get an idea of the bottom and then lay up for the night. Tomorrow, Jack Pualani said, I'll go down and see what the shark was doing, unless someone has a better idea. But no one had. Chapter 14 Under the Lagoon Twenty-one fathoms, Tom Bishop said. Average depth. Pretty deep, Jack. The big Hawaiian shrugged. Rick stared into the depths under the bow. He saw the anchor chain go down and down and down until it was lost in the green water. As the sun rose higher, they would be able to see farther into the water. They didn't know that it would help much. After running the lagoon a few times with the phantometer, they had spent the night at anchor off the small island of Faisal, where the phantom shark had lain. Here and there were coral outcroppings, but the average depth of the area where they had seen the fin was about 22 phantoms. What can we do? Barbie asked. There isn't a diving suit aboard. Jack wants to dive, Rick said. Her eyes widened. But that's too deep, Rick. I think so, too, Rick agreed, but he says he has gone deeper than that. Let's talk it over, Tom Bishop said. Where are Dr. Warren and the others? Still eating breakfast, Barbie told him. All right, let's see what they have to say. The rest of the group was aft, having breakfast under the canvas awning. Dr. Warren looked up as Tom approached. Any idea, Skipper? The Skipper motioned to Jack. He wants to dive. He's crazy, Bill Duncan exploded. I think not so, Charlie declared. Is divers in India that can go that deep? Jack has dived before. Maybe he can. The mate smiled. Thanks for the moral support, Chada. As a matter of fact, I've gone deeper than that myself. I hit 23 phantoms once off Hilo. Stayed down there for a minute and a half. Mrs. Warren asked quietly, How old were you then, Jack? I'll admit I was a lot younger, the mate grinned, but I'm not exactly an old man now. Scotty finished his coffee and stood up. Suppose you do go down, Jack. What's that going to prove? It was a sensible question, Rick thought. Maybe nothing, but the Phantom Shark wasn't playing tag with angelfish for fun. There must be something on the bottom. Dr. Warren nodded. There undoubtedly is. The question, it seems to me, is this. Is it worth the risk, though? I have an idea that all you're going to find is shell. Shell with pearls, Jack said. I have a hunch there are pearls on this lagoon. I'd like to see. Rick put in his pennies worth. Maybe there are, but would that explain what the shark was after? There can't be enough pearls so that he could just scoop them up off the bottom. How about the danger, Jack? Carl Ackerman asked. There are ordinary sharks in the lagoon, even if the phantom shark is gone. 
If you get into a grotto down on the bottom, you may run into a squid or even an octopus. Jack smiled. There's always a possibility, but dangers from shark and squid and octopus are pretty overrated. The big danger is from moray eels, or I might step on a poisonous sea star. Never have, though. I've been diving most of my life. Not alone, Dr. Warren said. No, not alone, but I'm willing to take the chance. The odds are on my side. Warren hesitated. Tell you what, I'll try it once. If it's too much, I'll quit. Is that fair enough? Rick could see that Jack was eager to make the dive and said, Scotty and I can stand by. We won't be much help, but maybe we'll be able to haul you out. I won't need hauling, Jack said decisively. You could stand by, though, in case I come up winded. Come on, let's get into our trunks, he spoke to Tom. Got a heavy weight with a line? Give me about 50 pounds if you can. The lifeboat anchor should do it, Tom said. I'll have extra line put on it. Rick and Scotty hurried with Jack down the companionway into the cabins. They stripped off their clothes and got into swimming trunks. When they returned to the deck, they found the lifeboat in the water. Two seamen shipped the long oars and took their places. Tom Bishop stepped into the boat with a coil of half-inch rope and untied the kedge-type anchor with which the lifeboat was equipped. He removed his rope and tied it rope and tied it the one he carried and then nearly to a cleat. Jack Pulani came out on the deck in his swimming trunks. He had underwater glasses and a pair of gloves. A heavy knife was at his belt. Rick looked at the mate critically. Jack was no longer a young man, but no one could guess it by looking at him. His bronze body was powerfully muscled, and he had an unusual depth of chest, the result, Rick thought, of his years of diving. Tom Bishop had gone to the other lifeboat and was bringing back its anchor. He addressed Rick and Scotty. We'll leave this second anchor in the lifeboat with you. Be sure the line is clear at all times. Watch Jack through the water glass. If he gets in trouble, both of you take a grip on the anchor and go after him. It'll pull both of you down if you kick the help out. You got knives? They had forgotten them. Chada hurried below and returned with a pair of keen fish knives with sheaths from the supply chest. The boys put them on the cloth belts of their trunks. Let's go, Jack said, and led the way into the lifeboat. Fifty feet away from the trawler, the mate instructed the seaman, Hold her right here. When you see me coming to the top, lift your oars so I won't bash my head against one of them. He took the water glass, which was a long box of metal, with one end open and the other glassed in. He put it over the sides so that the glassed in end was under the water. Then he put his face to the open end and examined the bottom for long minutes. Finally, he looked up at Rick and Scotty. Can't see much, but the bottom looks pretty clean. Don't get excited if any sharks come around. Chances are they won't bother me. Rick wished he had Jack's confidence. The big Hawaiian stood up, handing Scotty the water glass. For a long moment, he poised on the seat, his brown skin gleaming in the sun. Then he stepped into the water. There was a gasp from the watchers on the trawler. But Jack didn't dive just yet. He took hold of the gunwale and filled his lungs. Rick saw his massive chest expand 
Then he exhaled with a whoosh and repeated the process. Pass over the anchor, Jack directed. See that the line runs free. Don't let go until I signal. Rick lifted the heavy anchor and put it over the side while Scotty took the line and held it. The anchor dangled just below the surface. Jack inhaled, exhaled. Jack inhaled, exhaled. And then inhaled again with an explosive sound. He gripped the anchor and let himself sink. Then, as he nodded, Scotty let go the rope. Rick grabbed for the water glass and put it over the side as Jack vanished from sight. The rope whistled by his ear as he bent over the gunwale. The glass helped a lot. Rick saw the path of bubbles that marked Jack's rapid descent. Then, as the bubbles cleared, he saw Jack himself plummeting toward the bottom. The rope went slack. While the seamen held the boat in position, with slow movements of the oars, Scotty began hauling up the anchor. Rick strained to see through the water glass. Jack was a dim shape on the bottom, moving with slow strokes. He stopped, and Rick saw his arms move. Then he swam a few feet and stopped again. The seconds were ticking by. Rick could almost time them by the pulse of his temple. Was Jack going to stay down there forever? One minute, Dr. Warren shouted. Was that all? Rick called without taking his eyes from the dim shape on the bottom. He's all right. Jack continued to move, stopping now and then. Rick couldn't see what he was doing. He moved the glass and scanned the water nearby. Directly under him, a tiny fish moved, but there was no other sign of sea life. Two minutes, the scientist called. Rick watched Jack. Surely he must be coming up soon. But the mate was working at something, his arms a pale blur. Then Rick saw him swing upright. A heartbeat later, he was flashing to the surface. Lift oars, Rick shouted. Bubbles broke from Jack's lips and raced ahead of him to the surface. Then the mate himself broke water lifting almost three feet into the air. His breath expelled with an explosive whistle, and he gulped in clean air. A moment later, he had a grip on the gunwale with one hand that was grinning at them, his chest heaving. Look what I found! He took a shell from his belt, and then another, and another. He reached behind him and found a fourth. Gold lip oysters, he said. The bottom is covered with them. I think we've really found something. You should have a basket, Scotty said. The mate shook his head. No need. I haven't enough time to get more than I can tuck into my belt anyway. Any sign of octopus or anything down there? Rick asked. None that I saw. A little Moray got inquisitive and I took a poke at him with my knife. He ducked back into his hole. Any sharks in sight? I didn't see any, Rick answered. We probably won't. I'm trying not to raise much fuss down there. Sharks are curious, even when they're not hungry. Jack hooked his elbow over the gunwale and examined one wrist. Rubbed it on a little chunk of coral. I was afraid for a minute I'd been scratched by it. Seawater is a good disinfectant, Scotty said. That's not it. Blood brings sharks. Rick held up the shells so the group aboard the trawler could see. Four, he called. Is it going down again? Dr. Warren called back. Yes, sir. Well, tell him not to overdo it.
I won't, Jack said. Once or twice more, then I'm going to call it quits. The pressure is terrific down there. Okay, get the anchor over. Rick took the anchor and put it over the side, then took the rope from Scotty. Scotty picked up the water glass, first checking to see if the rope was clear. Jack began his deep breathing. This time he did it more slowly, gulping in the air, holding it in his lungs for a moment, and then expelling it. Then as he dropped below the surface, Rick let go of the rope. After the bubbles cleared and the anchor was hauled in, he found he could watch even without the water glass, although he couldn't see nearly as well. He held his hands out to shade the patch of water directly under his eyes from the sun. One minute, Dr. Ward called. There was no other sound. Far below, Jack was collecting shell, breaking the big oysters from the coral rock with his knife. Rick could see the shadowy outline of his body, but that was it. He's shaking his head, Scotty said worriedly. What do you think that means? I don't know. Is he still moving? Rick replied. Yeah? The scientist called out. Two minutes! Rick watched anxiously for Jack to start his swift rise to the surface, but the mate still moved around below. He keeps shaking his head. I'm afraid something is wrong, Scotty said. The seconds ticked away. Two and a half minutes, Dr. Warren cried. Why isn't he coming up? Rick half rose. Scotty, I think we... Barbie screamed. Shark! Rick caught a glimpse of Finn 50 feet away. Then he saw the rush of a sleek body through the water. And Jack flew toward the surface, arms flailing with driving strokes, his feet kicking frantically. Get ready to grab him! Scotty said hoarsely. Lift oars! Rick shouted. The mate broke water within reach, and before he had a chance to fall back in after his plunge into the air, four strong hands had him by the arms. With a mighty heave, the young men pulled him into the boat, and as his feet left the water, chiseled teeth clashed futilely on the air. Jack rolled over, gasping for breath, and then Rick saw what was wrong. Blood was running from his nose, and his eyes, when he opened them, were ruby red. The ship, Rick cried. Get us back there, quick! Oars dipped and the seamen bent their backs. The lifeboat flew through the water. Jack tried to sit up and grinned weakly. I was bleeding, wasn't I? I thought so when I saw that shark. Good thing they're timid. If he'd struck without looking, the situation over. I'd be a gone duck. What happened? Rick asked, throat tight. Pressure got to me. Guess I'm getting old. Lifeboat slid into place near the ladder, and the boys lifted Jack to his feet. Take it easy, Grandpa, Scotty said with joking tenderness. Willing hands helped Jack up the ladder. He sat down on a chair that Chada placed for him, and then drew four more shells from his belt. That's all for today, he said, and wiped blood from his nose. And for every other day, Dr. Ward said flatly. Mrs. Ward had hurried below at the first sight of Jack. She returned now with cubes of ice and a bowl of water and some soft linen napkins. The boys and the scientists stood back and let the two feminine members take over. While Mrs. Ward wiped Jack's face, Barbie wrapped ice cubes in a napkin. 
His nose was still bleeding a little. Barbie applied ice, tears in her blue eyes. I saw the shark, Jack, she said shakily. So did I, the mate said. He wasn't a very handsome one. He had buck teeth. I saw them when they gnashed at me. Don't choke! You might have been killed! Barbie reprimanded. But I wasn't, said Jack, grinning. So a joke is in order. He looked at Rick and Scotty. Thanks to you, my fast-thinking friends. If you hadn't grabbed me, old Br'er Shark would have. Rick swallowed as he remembered those clicking razor teeth. Ah, he would have let go right away. You're too old and tough. Guess you'd better confine your diving to only 20 phantoms instead of 22 from now on. He'll confine his diving to a glass of water, Tom Bishop said firmly, taking no more chances on losing the best man I ever had. If he got killed, I'd have to run the ship myself. I'd likely pile it onto a reef first thing. The deep color of Jack's eyes was receding, but they were still bloodshot. The bleeding had stopped under the application of ice. He sat up straight. I'm all right now, thanks. Let's say we take a look at those oysters. The seamen had brought the four from the lifeboat. Dr. Warren had been examining them. They were almost ten inches in diameter. What do you think, Bill? The biologist answered. Margaritifera maxima jameson, also known as gold lips. The best of the pearl oysters. Open one up, Jack. Here goes, the mate said. He took the first oyster and opened it expertly with his knife, exposing the beautiful iridescent mother-of-pearl interior, and then probed soft flesh. He let out a yell of triumph. I got one! His strong fingers tore the oyster loose, and then unrolled the flesh from around a spherical object the size of a small pea. He held it up. It gleamed in the sunshine pink, round, and perfect. The watching group stared in awe. Barbie had been holding her breath. She sighed audibly. It really is. Oh, Jack, it's, it's wonderful. He handed it to her, and she cradled it in her two hands while the others looked. My, but that was incredible luck, Dr. Warren said in awe. And on your very first try... Let's open up the others, Rick said quickly. He handed another to Jack. The mate opened it and probed. No luck, he said, and flipped the meat over the side and dropped the shell on the deck. Let's have another. Chada handed him one. Maybe this one. And the Hindu boy was right. In a moment, a second pearl, white and round and slightly smaller than the first, was in Barbie's hand. Dr. Warren scratched his head. This is just unbelievable. Jack, have you ever seen anything like this before? Two pearls and three oysters? It's incredible. Open the rest, Bill Duncan said. Maybe you'll hit the jackpot. The rests were quickly opened as the group watched in silence. When Jack had finished, eight open shells lay on the deck, and there were five pearls in Barbie's hands, three of them perfect, two irregular in shape, but valuable as Baroque or novelty pearls. They were stunned. To find one pearl in eight shells would have been superlative luck. But five? It was just, it passed belief. 
Barbie stared at the lovely things, her smooth forehead puckered in disbelief. I've read a lot about pearls, Bill Duncan said, but I've never heard of anything like this. There must be some unusual conditions in this lagoon. No wonder the phantom shark doesn't want us around. Jack Pualani reached out and touched the pearls. I don't know what those conditions are, but I'll tell you this. When we get to Noumea, I'm buying a helmet or a whole suit if I can get one. There's a fortune right there in Barbie's hands. There must be a whole mint in this lagoon. Better get some rest, Jack, Tom Bishop said. We'll talk about it later after you've had a nap. Well, Dr. Warren, what now? The scientist looked at the pearls. I suppose a mere fish survey seems rather anticlimactic after this, but I suggest we up anchor and head east. The sooner we get on the second leg of the survey, the sooner we can return to Noumea. I'd like to talk with an expert about these. It's, well, it's simply incredible. Incredible or not, Rick thought that they had finally found the answer to the phantom shark's presence in the lagoon. In spite of statistics, in spite of the rarity of pearls, the phantom shark had found an apparently inexhaustible source. He looked at Barbie. Her bright head was bent over the pearls she cupped in her hands. But where he should have found a look of sheer rapture on her face, there was bewilderment. She felt his glance and looked up. Chada said, Daughter of the moon, Barbie, bones of gods turned into sea-dwelling pearl, remember? And Barbie said a strange thing. I remember, she said thoughtfully. But Chada, I don't think the sacred Hindu book was talking about anything like this.